The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. It is only through a more radical politics that we can actually create the political subject that is necessary to beat these people. If we start fighting these culture wars on offense with the confidence that most people do not want the government to do a genital inspection of their child, then we can win. If not sexuality by itself doing this, what's being used historically is sexuality going hand in hand with forms of race making, with forms of gendering, and with forms of disciplining different unruly subjects. Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. Queer activists and writers and historians have been known to seek out gay icons from the past, calling on a troupe of saints and heroes and artists and dreamers to prove that there is more to LGBT existence than perversity or sickness or sin. To say, rightly, that queerness has always been here. Against a persistent backdrop of persecution and shame, the project of recovering these stories is a pretty damn important one, but we might still be missing something here. For one thing, it's hard to look back at even the most flamboyant examples of same-sex desire and call them exactly gay or queer or homosexual in the modern sense. Homosexuality as a concept was first coined in the late 1800s, around the time heterosexuality was categorised by some people as its own flavour of hypersexual deviance. Taxonomies of love and lust change depending on where you are and on when you are. So the hunt for gay life in the archives can be a little complicated. Moreover, history has its fair share of villainous and complicated queers, and they might have just as much to tell us about sex and power and the state as their more heroic counterparts. So, on this episode, I ask Ben Miller and Amadeep Singh Dillon, what do we make of these bad gays, these stories of same-sex desire and gender deviance? What can they tell us about the present and future of the fight for queer liberation? Ben Miller is a writer and researcher, He's a doctoral fellow at the Graduate School of Global Intellectual History at the Freie Universität Berlin and a member of the board of the Schuler's Museum. He co-hosts the podcast Bad Gays with writer Hugh Lemmy and he's the co-author of the book Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Amadeep Singh Dillon is a writer and co-editor at Red Pepper magazine whose work has appeared in outlets including The Independent, Navarra Media and Vice. They are the programme coordinator at The World Transformed and they're an organiser with South London Bartenders Network and Lesbians and Gays Support the Migrants. So Ben, in your book co-authored with Hugh Lemmy, of course, you talk about how the invention of sexuality per se as this essential part of the self that everyone has or everyone sort of is, That's only around 150 years old, right? Incredibly recent in the whole swath of histories that you look at, indeed, in the whole swath of human sexuality. So how does that start to get articulated, right? This move from queerness or same-sex desire being something you do to being something that you are? That's a really great question, Eleanor. You know, it's not our idea that sexuality is only about 150 years old as a as a concept and is something that's a kind of coherent central part of human identity that knowledge has really been 
the way that everyone who is having these conversations in activist and academic context has been talking since the 1980s, uh, early 1990s. It comes from the work of Marxist gay liberation activists, people like John D'Amelio, who's part of the Gay Socialist Action Project in New York City and writes this very influential essay called Capitalism and Gay Identity, which follows how as working class men, or as men rather, leave the land and move to cities and become proletarian working class men, suddenly they have days that are oriented in to zones of work and leisure. They have lives outside of family systems. They find themselves confronted with all kinds of new opportunities and ways of sort of structuring their days and their lives around wage labor. And he sort of covers it from that angle. And then Foucault kind of covers it from the other angle, right? Looking at how discourses of sexology, of psychiatry, begin to construct these different figures of pathology, which then become figures of self-identification, right? And then there's also this additional piece um, that comes out of the work of people like Ann Stoller, which looks at how the colonies are a key site of the development of sexuality, both um, in terms of serving as zones where metropolitan people can kind of live out often very racialized sexual fantasies and desires and freedoms, um, and also as a place where indigenous and non-Western sexual practices become a source of inspiration for metropolitan sex radicals who are classified alongside those people as backwards, as outside of European time, productive time, family time, and who then start to think, well, I am this person, you know, I am like that. Obviously, they're not. It's a. This is not a. This is not an uncomplicated or unproblematic set of assumptions, right? But uh, it is one that gets made. But even just saying that right now, I'm putting myself to sleep and I'm putting you to sleep. <laughs> and so the idea of the book is: how do we have that conversation that's been happening um, in academic and and activist circles for so long, and so brilliantly? And there's so much brilliant work around this. How do we? intervene then into a queer public history that is still Pride Month listicles and Instagram card stacks about like the great gay heroes of all time, which are pretending on the one hand that all people who have been same-sex loving or gender nonconforming have been like wonderful radicals on the side of right, which is not true, and that are also pretending that gender and sexuality have existed in roughly the same ways for roughly the same amount of time. I'll give you one example. We start the book with Hadrian, and I think Hadrian or Alexander the Great, right, is often one of the first people on that listicle or on that Instagram card stack of, you know, the great gays of all time, whatever. But if you start talking about what does Hadrian's sex and romantic life actually look like, what this sort of vaunted Greek homosexuality or Roman homosexuality looks like is you as an upper-class land-holding man, mm. top twinks, but you're also married to a woman with whom you have your children. And as we like to say whenever we do book events, nowadays we don't call that being gay, we call that being a Tory, right? So, <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds like Friday night in Clapham. That's, that's not something that, um, allegedly, that's not <laughs> something that, uh, that is recognizable to me right, as a gay identifying man, as something that is me, 
right? And at the same time, uh, Hadrian does all kinds of things that are recognizable to the contemporary gay, and he is a part of how that identity came to exist, right? He goes on holiday to Greece, he grows a beard, he gets really into art, he has this sort of desperate love for this beautiful younger man and ends up building him a lot of cities. I mean, these are all things on different scales, depending on our resources, that I think a lot of uh, contemporary gay men may be able to identify with. And so really the the project of the book is a history of the present, right? Of looking at all of these stories and trying to figure out what do they tell us about how we came to be now? How can we make the past strange vividly, not through theory, but through storytelling, and start getting at the ways in which even these people who exist far before sexuality, either heterosexuality or homosexuality in the sense of a way of being came to be, how do we um, tell the stories of these people and the ways that they do implicate us and reach out to us and that they are a part of what those sexualities ended up becoming? Mm. You think when you express that essential link, right, between the development of the theory, the uh, phrasing of homosexuality also implies the invention of its opposite, right, or its supposed opposite of heterosexuality. And yet, when we kind of are digging through the archives, we're not necessarily looking for representation to see ourselves in the 12 top heterosexuals across time, right? And it <laughs> presents us with, a, with an archival problem and a historiographical problem, because so often in these stories, the, the kind of clean lines that are sometimes drawn by, I guess, contemporary campaigners between uh, the sexuality on one hand over here, and that is a separate and distinct thing from gender, which is over there. These stories become muddied in our search for some kind of representation, right? People who we might understand as identifying as bisexual or trans or queer or gender non-conforming or all of them or neither of them, which kind of leaves me with the question what is the what are we searching for there right what are we doing when we're kind of digging through the archives and asking questions about who and what these people are in our own terms um, Amar, i would love to ask you about this yeah i mean for a start when you were talking about the degree to which we can relate to to, to people we see as queer in history i was thinking like whomst amongst us has not built a city to a twink, you know? Like, I mean, that's <laughs> quintessential. Um, you come to the big city, you build a big city for a twink. But I guess in, uh, <laughs> in, in a bit more of a serious vein, I mean, from, from my own experience, like I've done exactly the kind of thing that this book makes such a critical and important intervention into, right? Like growing up, like particularly from a Punjabi background, I actually had access a little bit to the idea that some white people are homosexual. That was a language I had at that time. Some white people are <laughs> homosexual. Um, and I, I went looking, you know, I really went searching to try to find if there were any homosexuals in my history. And, you know, I found examples of like queer desire and queer longing and even queer devotion through the figure of some of the Sufi saints of um, 18th century Punjab, for example. And that was really important for me personally, right? To be like, oh, there are other people like me. Like, I'm not necessarily an aberration. But, and in terms of my personal development, that sense of, oh, here's like a kind of concrete subjectivity. Here's a coalition of people across history and across geography that I can relate to. And I can see myself as being part of that story. 
And at the same time, you know, when I was when I was reading this book, actually, it did make me look back um, at the figure of Shah Hussein, this, you know, queer, sort of queer Sufi saint, and realise that so much of how that queer desire was expressed was also in terms of lineage. So the young, again, the young Twinkie Brahmin boy that this older Muslim <laughs> saint loves ends up becoming his successor of like a a political community, right? So it's also about the transference of power there, um, which is a really in- interesting way to think about it. And so I think that, ser- that search for identification is like, pretty natural. But what it does mean is that I think I was I was maybe 20 or 21 when I kind of stumbled upon like John the Media's essay that Ben referenced earlier. And that was a massive shock to me because up until that point, the idea of like queerness or being gay or being trans as being a um, historically contingent subjectivity and construction was completely alien. I would never have been able to conceptualize it, right? And I think there are real world implications for what that meant in terms of like the political development of, of people who were kind of in the spaces that I was at the time. Like it was really important to be doing activism or organizing around representation of queer people who are a clearly defined group of people with exactly the same set of interests. Mm. And that took precedence, that politics of representation necessarily comes to the fore when so much of your own journey is predicated on kind of trying to pull representation that you relate to from the histories in which it's been buried. And one of, one of the amazing things about this book, I think, is that it's a really clear but also very accessible challenge to the idea of stable identities predicated on desire and on particular Western conceptualizations of desire as well. So really grateful, uh, really grateful to the book for that, actually. Thank you so much um, for that. Ah, it's nice <laughs> um, as an author always to hear that someone found your work useful and especially in a way that you weren't necessarily anticipating. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a representation is not particularly important to you or I. And I think it's a book against representation in a lot of ways as the be-all and end-all of queer politics. And this is something that I think a lot of other people are thinking about right now too. Jennifer Evans has a really great new book out just now called uh, The Queer Art of History, Queer Kinship After Fascism that kind of takes aim at this same kind of thing. That I think ironically, the more that queer drifts away from its reference and the more it becomes this kind of floating signifier of alterity, the more it ends up meaning nothing or rather meaning different but good, which is just essentializing again, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to thinking about what kinds of people at what time is the sex gender system making strange. And one of the conclusions of the book actually is that gay men like me are probably exiting our period of being that, depending on the trajectory of certain kinds of anti-queer politics. Muzzle tough. But certainly, certainly under a kind of liberal rights consensus, gay men do start exiting that, right? That's how you have a Pim Fortown in the Netherlands. That's how you have a Pete Buttigieg in the US. That's how you have a West Reading in the UK, right? But I also think that the presence of this kind of thinking in gay liberation thought and in queer thought really puts the lie to this kind of bullshit little Britain Marxist or little Europe Marxist thing that you hear where really kind of bad faith and ignorant readings of Foucault and of other kind of gay liberation thinkers that are veiled in barely disguised, if disguised at all, homophobia, Mm. put forward the idea that somehow Foucault and these early queer theorists are promoting a version of fixed identity politics or representation politics. And if you bother to actually read what Foucault wrote about sexuality and how sexuality is created, right, 
you understand that, I mean, the, the great Foucault quote about gay men, the, the, the word he uses is, he talks about gay men in my time and says, this is changing, this will change, this will not always be so, are interesting to analyze only to the extent that they reveal something of what he calls the slantwise in social relations, something that cuts across the frame of social relations, and then you can see how things fit together along this sort of slantwise cut. And I think for the historical period, the book is about, um, and the book is about the figure of the white gay man, how the white gay man happened, why he was a mistake, and what we should do instead. <laughs> that kind of holds, and I don't think that it necessarily holds for all times or all places or anything else. So, yeah, I think it's in some ways a book that is written out of frustration with certain kinds of contemporary queer political conversations, but it's also a book that to both you and I feels very actually in a lineage of queer theoretical and gay liberation work and in a lineage that is um, often misunderstood, I think, both by its adherents and by its critics. There is this strain of thought that kind of casts any attention to gender or sexual deviance or any kind of attention to what that deviance might might look like, how it might change as a sort of decadent identitarianism. And we find strains of that deeply across the political spectrum. And it sort of seems to redound to the idea that not only is uh, homosexuality potentially or heterosexuality inherent and natural and unchanging, so is homophobia. And it really blunts our ability to ask questions of it as a properly political force that we would otherwise ask as, okay, why is it here and what is it doing? And often this process that you've mentioned about making strange is a violent process, right? It's a process of policing. And I really want to kind of locate this the story of how that evolves in the colonies, I was wondering, Emma, if you could help us unravel a little bit about how the sense of you know heterosexuality of this kind of white, coherent, continent, proper normal sexuality gets articulated and evolved through the British imperial project. Big question, I know. Yeah, uh, a massive question in lots of ways. At the same time, I think there's maybe a reach, a bit of a through line between being me being 18 years old in like G-A-Y late and someone telling me I'm so exotic and I know that <laughs> they know that my people are much more free when it comes to comes to the transgenders. I think it's a through line between that oh, no. and between, you know, the Orientalism of the figures that are articulated um, in this book. And obviously some of those are attempting to be more self-aware of that than others like Lawrence of Arabia for example really interesting complicated relationship of kind of tantalizing reaches towards self-awareness but almost not quite being able to quite reach it because of his own positionality I think what what's really interesting to me though is that 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 sense is very prominent in discourses today especially the kind of Instagram graphics of queer history there's an idea that like pre-colonialism, actually, all of these, you know, supposedly non-colonized and free nations were full of like queer and trans people who were having a great time. And then the British Empire arrives and suddenly it's outlawed, which is just really, really infuriating, actually, because in much the same ways that the discourses and the structures that produce competing and at times confluencing understandings 
of sexuality and of the sex gender system are happening in Britain and across the Western world. Those are happening in different ways, you know, obviously also in a context outside of that, you know, across across the subcontinent, across uh, the Middle East. And I think what that leads to is this idea that the way that queer people in ex-colonized nations can kind of build towards equality is to constitute themselves as, you know, like uh, mobile, independent, liberal subjects who are fighting within a human rights framework to assimilate into the family structure, whether that's a nuclear family or different family structures. I will just say, by the way, one thing I would love to talk about at some point is the abolition of the extended family as well as a nuclear family. Um, (laughs) Assimilation into normative familial structures, wherever those might be, right? And what that means for the accumulation of assets. And so that's still playing out on on the subcontinent. And the way that that works is by, with reference to the idea that, for example, before colonization, there was a hijra community of like trans and intersex and queer people who were supposedly celebrated and tolerated within Indian society, which completely ignores the fact that actually there was a, a caste primarily of sex workers, of people who were intersex or people who are tr- what we might understand as trans, but that develops out in response to the violences of being ostracized by the social structures that existed. And they carved out necessarily a space within the culture to exist because of that, right? And in a similar way to how in the book, a lot of the conversations around like the idea of the pervert as being quite central to conceptions of homosexuality with the proletarianization of large swathes of the population and of urbanization, in the same way that that's linked to the red light districts or the kind of don't ask, don't tell codes by officer barracks, the same thing effectively, you know, has happened within India uh, and in other territories across the world. And so it's very useful now to say that, you know, th- that could, those communities have always been celebrated, there's always been a space for them. One of the reasons they're being celebrated now, which is really interesting, is that they point to an indigenous Indian queerness, which on the one hand can be utilised by the same kind of masculinist, fascist discourse that has been articulated as being developed in the bad gaze of um, Weimar Berlin, for example, is happening under Modi's Hindutva. At the same time, the only real route to trying to claim any rights for like queer communities is to shoehorn those identities into the Western categories of like gay or bisexual or lesbian or trans. So there's a there's an erosion that's happening there as well. I would love to pick up on what you were mentioning about um, this idea of the the transference of power and how queerness gets used as a way of you know articulating relations of power. And I'm really um, taken with the fact that's been rattling around in my head ever since I read it, actually first listened to it on the podcast, that the first criminalisation of homosexuality in the United Kingdom was when Henry VIII needed a moral and political pretext to grab land from the monasteries, right? It was a sin beforehand. It would be dealt with in the church courts and suddenly it is a crime that is punishable with very extreme violence. So how does that kind of get wrapped into these broader histories that are going on at the same time of like land enclosure and the development of the sort of the, the family form? Sure. Um, I want to go back actually Please. for a second and talk, talk to something that um, Amar said, because I think it's, I share a lot of your frustrations with some of this Instagram stuff about the, you know, 
pre-colonial, supposedly pre-colonial world as this kind of paradise of of sexual diversity and and acceptance, and without in any way denying the violence against queer people that was done by colonization, right? The extent to which so many anti-sodomy laws in the global south are the direct copied anti-sodomy laws from whichever colonizing power invaded at that point, right? Many, many, many copies of the British anti-sodomy laws on the books around the world. But the portrayal of um, indigenous and uh, pre-colonial life worlds as being paradises of queer self-expression is actually something that is enters into Western discourse through primitivist white queer people, right? Who so often go to these places and end up finding only what it is that they're looking for, right? There's a chapter in the book about Margaret Mead where you know she says basically, I'm going to Samoa because it's a very simple culture and you can learn everything about the culture in seven weeks. And she goes to Samoa and finds out um, as a woman who is in the middle of a kind of complicated free love romantic crisis where she has this girlfriend, Ruth Benedict, also an anthropologist and this husband and this whole thing. And guess what she ends up discovering? She ends up discovering that in Samoa, the you know an earlier generation of German anthropologists would call them the nature people. She's a little more sophisticated than that. But in Samoa, um, these people have no neurosis and everyone just lives in free love and everyone's fine with it and it's all great. And young women before marriage have all this sex and it's all fine. And you know, kind of uh, using these people as a kind of mirror for herself. And then that gets picked up by all these different liberation activists who say, look, here we are in history, here we are everywhere. And so I think you see a lot of that primitivism kind of echoing in some of these conversations that that happen now. What's really important to highlight here in all of this is how these like fidelity to these colonial discourses of you know what a natural form of sexuality looks like and what this trans-historical form of sexuality looks like ends up in these cases reproducing things that are of course the pretext for sexual violence like the the figure of the the hottentot the figure of the hypersexualized black or brown woman and i'm really intrigued to to know like is margaret mead and her contemporaries are they sort of engaged with that idea or are they are they sort of blissfully unaware? Like, how do they relate to the idea of like the fact that you know there are there is an endemic sexual violence as part of the process of colonialization, which is why they're there in the first place, right? She's there partly on a you know what is it a U.S. naval base, if I remember that rightly. Yeah, that's how she gets there. I mean, there is two different kind of generations of anthropology, and I'm going to talk about this German American lineage because that's where Mead fits in. And they have different approaches to this, right? So someone like Magnus Hirschfeld, the kind of Weimar era and Wilhelmine pre-Weimar, pre-First World War era German gay rights activist, is relying on late 19th century German anthropology that is explicitly stagist, right? It posits a stages of human development, a kind of conveyor belt towards civilization. And it also posits that there are some people who are, as it terms, Naturvölker, nature people, people who have no history, they have no culture, and they are representatives, therefore, of the universal human. When Emil Nolde, the German modernist painter, goes to the South Seas, he describes what he takes back from these German colonies as Urkunst, which you translate as primitive art, but which means like original art because of the idea is that this is the beginning of all, all things, right? Mead is the pupil of 
a German anthropologist named Franz Boas who leaves Germany and goes to New York City and starts the Department of Columbia. And Boas instantiates a revolution in anthropology by departing from the idea of stages of human development and instead promoting the idea of cultural relativism, right? This idea that different cultures need to be approached and understood on their own terms. Better, yes, free from the power structures of anthropological data gathering and colonialism, no. Um, and also often very essentializing about culture, which of course often is a stand-in for race, even if it's a self-consciously anti-racist anthropology, it is not factually an anti-racist anthropology. It can be very essentializing about this kind of cultural difference. And the idea then of, you know, on the one hand you say, okay, we want to understand cultures on their own terms, great. On the other hand, Mead says, well, I'm going to Samoa because it's a simple culture, so I can understand it on its own terms in seven weeks, which is not true, right? So these things interact with one another, but they are also different, right? Someone like Hirschfeld is going to literal human zoos in Berlin where German entrepreneurs are bringing people from Africa and from the German colonies in the in the South Seas to Berlin and installing them in diorama native villages like their wax figures and having them march around and do things for, for, for gawking spectacle visitors. Or dealing with a context of physical anthropology, right, where there's literally like giant piles of skulls of people the German military murdered, many of which are still at my university, the Free University in Berlin. And Mead is not working with giant piles of skulls, and yet Mead is still working in the context of the U.S. Navy, and Mead is still then putting her book out into a discursive environment in which it's picked up and discussed as evidence that there is somewhere out there on the edge of the known world this kind of tropical utopia of free love, which is very much how the book is received, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why the book becomes a bestseller, which is a, a nice um, goal for anyone writing a PhD in anthropology to have your PhD <laughs> dissertation be published by William Morrow and become a bestseller. <laughs> um, so yeah, the relationship to those things is complicated, but I think both of them are definitely playing on different forms of um, exoticization and, and othering. What's curious about these histories is that you know, whilst there are people, especially you know, writers, um, seems to be a lot of French writers as well, Flaubert's doing it, Gide is doing it, Jean Genet is doing it, going off into the colonies and discovering, quote unquote, this paradise of sexual freedom in which they can feel themselves to be living authentically, living sort of unrestrained by the sort of various strictures placed on both same-sex attraction and sort of different sex attraction in various different ways. But at the same time, there is this massive moral panic about the homosexuality as a scourge on the empire's youth. And like what seems to be a consistent historical thread is the idea of same-sex attraction as this kind of weakening thing on the body politic, butting heads with a, a more kind of fascistic understanding of you know male-male attraction as this completely idealized, hyper-masculinist brotherhood um, whereby same-sex desire is this kind of apotheosis of um, masculine dominance, right? We're not. We're so unconcerned with femininity that we're not even bothering to have sex with women anymore. It's part of what I've come to think of um, terrifyingly as a kind of erotics of, of fascism or like that kind of the erotics of like the colonial domination. And I'm just kind of wondering how that's playing out today because you have on the one hand 
a lot of moral panics about um, gay people undermining society. Well done, team. But on the other hand, you have um, increasingly um, what seemed to me to be very queer-coded masculine spaces in which fascism seems to be organising itself. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think what's tricky about it is that I don't think it's as simple as saying those two same threads are kind of running in the same way as they have been since those discourses first kind of started butting heads, right, back in the days of empire. But I certainly think it's true, and I think this is mentioned in the book, actually, that there's a there's an aesthetic articulation of this more masculinist idea of the, the quote-unquote, like, homosexual gay man quite specifically, right, that we see really, really common... Um, in various scenes, like, in, you know, in particular, I think, like, the leather scene as well, that offers a little bit of a refraction sometimes to the kind of, like, dare I say it, like, skinhead aesthetics. And, like, I do I do think, though, that primarily, actually, like, the way that we're seeing current queer discourses, well, not discourses, current queer subjectivities interact with fascistic tendencies, I would argue is probably in the... Um, I think I would argue that the the primary kind of differential at this stage is between a much more old school, like quite transphobic articulation of like gay desire or like lesbian desire or subjectivity versus the kind of developing idea of queerness as a more fluid thing and specifically transness as potentially, you know, posing a threat to the body politic or posing a threat to the traditional nuclear family, the traditional um, process whereby people accumulate wealth and pass it down, accumulate assets in the form of investing in a property together, normally in a monogamous situation. Like, uh, there's a sense in which I think that, like, transness as something that is destabilising traditional gender roles and gender norms is maybe a kind of clearer distinction of where we're seeing the, the more old school, like, fascistic tendencies wearing their heads. And I think the way that that's kind of manifesting is in the idea that, like, the, the real kind of crux of it, I think, is what transness can, and doesn't always, but what it can bring into the discussion is the idea of choice, right? And so obviously, for various reasons, so much of, like, the gay liberation movement was speaking about gay desire as something that was inherent, something that was innate, that was building on the idea that these are things that are found in nature, the whole born-this-way kind of thing, right? These days, you've got people like me, whereas some people, you know, do um, experience transness on gender nonconformity in that way, you also do have people like myself who are actually kind of choosing it, right? And that element of choice and the element of autonomy... That is really, really destabilising. And so I think that while it's true that the masculinist tendencies historically within a particular construction of gay male identity map on quite easily to the burgeoning, like, nationalistic fascism and discourse, and in particular anti-migrant discourse, the way we're seeing that happen within a queer politics probably doesn't map on quite so neatly. Mm. Ben, I would love for you to come in on this because, you, the, my God, in this book, there are so many Nazis proto-fascist, a million usually white cis gay men dabbling with fascism or dabbling with that form of, of dominance. It sort of seems to be kind of offering some kind of, well, certainly not liberation, but certain, certainly kind of personal security, personal advancement in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I mean, I want to get, a, I want to be careful um, and I want to get a little bit away from 
cis gay masculinity mm. equals fascism. Um, <laughs> and I want to get yes. a little bit away from like various forms of kink expression of sort of hyper-masculine kink expression equals fascism, right? Yeah. There's a great quote in a book in Mark Thompson's anthology, Leather Folk, which is about leather sex, came out in the early 90s, where Michael Bransky's talking about how the kind of political lesbian critique of, of leather, that it was a, you were like uh, trying to sort of replicate heterosexual masculinity. And the response is, do you think that when I walk down the street wearing leather trousers, <laughs> leather vests, leather boots, and assless chaps, that anybody thinks that I am straight? <laughs> like, does anybody think that I'm a cop <laughs> when I'm like, really? That's a red-blooded heterosexual if I've ever seen one. <laughs> you know, Eurovision is happening as we record this and you always watch it and think somewhere in like rural somewhere there is a grandmother watching these two men like <laughs> rip each other's shirts off and rub each other with oil while singing a pop song in glittery boots and thinking, ah, yes, this is a representation of stoic Romanian masculinity. <laughs> um, anyway, but back to the topic at hand. I, I I think that there are there has been a sort of long tradition, right, of different kinds of gay masculinist political expression, and uh, the Weimar era gay masculinists are sort of the most well known and well studied and well discussed of that group. And what's interesting about them is that they politically go in a lot of different directions, right? Some of them are proto-fascists, some of them are communists, some of them are, are anarchists, but anarchists in a way that doesn't necessarily map onto what we think of as being anarchists now, a more sort of libertarian and less collectivist anarchism, you could say. And, and what's really interesting about many of them is that they will reject the term and the concept of homosexuality precisely because it links sexual object choice with gender. And what they're trying to do is really separate those things. And, and the longer the 20th century goes on, the more that sexuality and gender choice get separated from one another, right? That concept, I think, is something that a lot of us learned by rote if we if we learned these things that, right, like there's sexuality and there's gender and we saw some horrible diagram of like a gender-bred person or a some kind of unicorn or yeah. dials or whatever. <laughs> and we learned that you can have different expressions and your gender expression and your sexual orientation, the quote is always, don't have anything to do with one another, right? And while it is obviously true that there are more and less traditionally masculine presenting gay men, just to use one example, or more and less fem femininely presenting lesbian women, and there are also more and less masculinely presenting straight women, right? I, I live in Germany, a country where there are a lot of butch straight women, right? I think the idea that these things have nothing to do with one another isn't just isn't quite true, right? I think they do have something to do with one another because our whole concept of what gender is is also inclusive if we think about these kind of gender ideal types that exist only in um, discourse. Um, they do have something to do with sexual object choice, right? Part of the meaning of, of what it is to be a, a man is wrapped up in sexual object choice, right? There's the, the famous Monique Wittig quote, right? Lesbians are not women because women, mm. what it is to be a woman is to be fucked by a man and lesbians don't do that. And there's a really bad kind of turfy direction that that can all go. Um, but but I think we can, we can stay well away from that while still in integrating some of those insights about the way that these things are actually linked. What I think is more interesting than saying that all cis gay masculinity is automatically suspect as fascist is to instead 
look at historically the times and places and environments where some kind of cis gay masculinity has been congruent with fascism and try to think about why. There's two examples in the book that I think are useful. One of them is from that Weimar period. We look at Ernst Röhm, who's one of the first openly gay politicians in the world, and he's also a member of the Nazi party, influential one. And Röhm is someone who is particularly interesting because he has a very explicitly political sexuality. Like he thinks of his sexuality as being a part of him and a part of his politics. And it's a politics of battlefield and it's a politics of militarism and it's a politics of by abrogating women, uh, by avoiding them in every way, uh, including in bed, we demonstrate that we are the true national men, right? And the other example is Pim Fortown, right, from the from the late 90s, late 2000s, who's a member of the kind of rebirth of the European right. He's one of the first really successful politicians in this kind of most recent uh, rebirth of the European new right. And what's interesting about Fortown is that he uses his sexuality in public in an extremely strategic way. This is someone who almost becomes prime minister of the Netherlands. He's assassinated in the middle of an election campaign. And during this election campaign, he's not only openly gay, but he is on television talking about sucking people off in dark rooms. He's on television talking about the taste of cum. Um, he is... And, and he uses this basically to present his version of violent anti-migrant racism as the culmination of emancipatory politics, right? To say, here in the Netherlands, someone like me can go on TV and talk about how cum tastes and go to dark rooms and still be your prime minister. And these migrants are, want to change that. And they're going to change that. And that's a really effective line. And that's a much more camp kind of masculinity than Rame's very sort of bearded brotherhood situation. Um, someone like Milo recently, right? Milo Yiannopoulos, if anyone is so blessed as to not be aware. Who's mercifully seems to have sunk back down to the bottom of whatever pit he emerged from originally. But, you know, he's someone who, you know, that whatever, whatever that is, whatever that performance is, it certainly is not a performance of stoic <laughs> conventional masculinity, right? <laughs> and so... Really, that's the that's the project of the book is to try to think about the ways that all of these different kinds of expressions of 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 sex and gender uh, have been and can be congruent with things we dislike, I guess, and and it comes out of a conviction that there is no perfect political subject already in existence, right? If there was, we would have won already. So. We need to think about how you make that, and part of how you think about how you make that is to think about the inadequacy of all of these things that have been, and one of the ways that these things are inadequate is that they're often congruent with really uh, violent or dysfunctional ways of, of being, of understanding other people, of understanding your own place in the world. Emma? Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with all that, actually, and I think what's been really interesting, um, in the last few months we've seen a slightly unexpected like fascist street presence emerging in pubs across South London, primarily in opposition to Drag Queen Story Hour. And one of the ways that, you know, these initially kind of like centre-right, quote-unquote respectable right-wing groups 
slowly morphing into just mainly actually like Christo fascists and football hooligans and out and out Nazis, what those groups are really drawing a lot of their supposed credibility from is that they have like gay and increasingly trans people to actually front some of their campaigns, right? Like I think at Honor Oak, at the Honor Oak pub a few weeks ago, there was Scott Nugent, who's a, an American trans man who has been leading, well, not leading the charge, but has been a, a useful face of the narrative of, you know, the idea that drag queens and like the trans lobby is grooming grooming children. And I think it's really important, the qualification that you made earlier in response to my last point about looking at how, what are the contexts in which, you know, like fascist discourses can construct uh, particular notions of queerness or queer, queer subjectivity that are useful in specific contexts, right? I think you're totally correct that like, this isn't specific to like cis gay men. This comes out of the kind of encroachment or development of fascistic tendencies in so many nation states. I think what I'm what I'm kind of wondering is that there's, I think for me at least, within the book and within the kind of politics that we're talking about, it kind of calls to mind, you know, it, it seems to me a, a, a call to the idea of the abolition of sexuality and of the sex gender system potentially as a kind of long-term political goal, right? But what I was what I was thinking about was a lot of the time when we are talking about queer people or gay people who front campaigns that we would imagine to be against their own benefit, right? That are part of far-right mobilizations, that are part of quite dangerous queerphobic right-wing discourses. A lot of the time, like what we will say is the fact that ultimately this is going to be damaging to you. Like, you know, the leopards are going to one day also eat your face, right? <laughs> and yet it it does it never seems to be the case that, that there is a lack of people to front those kinds of like discourses and what I'm wondering I guess is like what does it signify that the far right is now in to some degrees claiming particular gay or queer people while at the same time obviously being like very homophobic and very queerphobic like where is a kind of saturation point there beyond which it becomes threatening or is that not how it's working? I mean I think it's important to not concede to the far right or to these that there is some plurality or majority or even really significant percentage of gay and lesbian people who are anti-trans, mm-hmm. right? That's something that they want us to believe. And without pretending that gay and lesbian people are always or have always been great to trans people, and without pretending that gay and lesbian political organizing has always been or is always great for trans people, I think... The number of people who actually, gay and lesbian people who are actually part of these like LGBT alliance type organizations, whether in the UK or around the world, is vanishingly small. And, you know, if, if many gay and lesbian people have a kind of liberal representational politics that I think we would, Hugh and I would be interested in critiquing, and I think all of us here would be interested in critiquing, I think the number of them who are actually engaged in this kind of anti-trans activism or who are anything other than really put off by it is vanishingly small. And I think it's just important to say that always out loud, right? That these people do not have a majority, right? TERFs are not a majority of feminists. They are not a majority of women. Anti-trans gay people who want to do LGB without the T or who want to front these campaigns against drag queens or whatever are a horrible minority. They must be dealt with, but they're a tiny minority and they are detested by the majority of 
LGBT people. They hate us and we hate them right back. And um, they're pathetic and they're stupid and we can beat them. And uh, I'm really convinced of that. You know, and I think it's also important to concede that there is not even a majority in public for this kind of stuff, right? Transphobic discourse, and this doesn't make it any less dangerous, but it is pushed by a vanishingly small number of people who are extremely good at building different kinds of political consensus, but who, when the question is raised in public, tend to lose which means we can beat them and we should be, I think, fighting very aggressively. These culture wars that they seem so eager to start, if they want to start them, let's bring the f***ing game and take them down. No, I'm serious about this. I mean, the, the, in 2016, when the first one of the first big prominent um, anti-trans bills of this wave, right, the North Carolina bathroom bill was proposed, the guy who proposed it, and this was a year when Hillary Clinton lost the presidency and Democrats lost everywhere, he lost the governorship of North Carolina against a Democrat in a state that Donald Trump won, where that was the major issue. Like, when Republicans in the most recent midterm tried to really make trans kids in sports and all this stuff, every place they tried to make this a huge issue and make that the fulcrum of the election, they lost if it was a reasonably close place. Now, does that mean that there aren't horrifying bills being proposed? No. Does that mean that people are not facing discrimination at home? Of course not. They are. Does it mean that this discrimination is any less real or terrifying? No. Does it mean that these laws are any less bad for people? No. But I think we can, I think we can fight this on offense and win. That's my point. But back to the question of, of, of the sort of gays and lesbians who, who have become a part of this. I think once we start understanding them as coming out of some of the same structures that create these liberal gay and lesbian lesbian identities that we are more familiar with, right? If we understand how someone like Pim Fortown can't exist until there's a civil rights consensus that that enables him to live, right? And that enables him to have the relationship he has towards the state. Once we understand how they're how they're related to these structures, then I think that we see that it is only through a more radical politics that we can actually create the political subject that is necessary to beat these people. But I think that if we start fighting these culture wars on offense with the confidence that most people do not want the government to do a genital inspection of their child to, before she plays soccer, then I think we can <laughs> we can win. And I think we should fight offensively and on those terms. And I think we should fight offensively for the idea that trans people are good, that trans people are humans, that human people deserve rights. And I do think that, that we can make a robust offensive case for trans and gay and lesbian and queer flourishing. I'm really intrigued by what... Uh, notions of of deviance uh, doing at the moment because you know as we've talked about that's a shifting category and is always kind of underpinned to um, or often underpinned to your relationship to the state or your relationship to private property right something that really stuck in my brain that's been rattling around ever since I read it was the fact that the first sort of criminal penalties for homosexuality or for sodomy actually which is an important distinction to make, um, in the UK were instituted by Henry VIII when he wanted to have a tidy little pretext, morally and politically, to destroy the monasteries. Yes, because he wanted to get married, but more importantly, because he wanted all of their land. Thank you very much. And there is this consistent relationship between property and landedness and the accumulation of power and the, the sort of more broader ways of population management, right? The disciplining of individuals. And uh, what I'm uh, kind of curious about 
is, you know, why is it sexuality or how is it sexuality that, that plays that such an effective role in helping landowners and bosses and rulers and despots of various kinds insert themselves so efficiently pun not intended this is a visual this is a non-visual medium but am i is giggling um into the uh into the most intimate lives of the people that they're trying to control right like why what work is kind of sexuality doing there i mean i think it's it's obviously important to remember that like it's not it's not sexuality by itself doing mm-hmm. this right like what, what what is what is being used historically is sexuality like going hand in hand with forms of race making with forms of like gendering and with forms of like disciplining different like unruly subjects whether that's whether that's henry the eighth going after the monasteries or whether um with the kind of development of policing powers we start to see like those subjectivities of, of the supposed pervert and the supposed invert that starts to fulfill like a i guess like a slightly different function right and like following the enclosure of the commons, following the urbanization and proletarianization, that starts to manifest at once in the in the construction of what we might now understand as like as like the homosexual, but also at the same time like the disciplining of the relations and the behaviors of wage laborers. In some senses, I think, because like those relations and those behaviors. And this is not some kind of argument that says, you know, sexuality is inherently revolutionary or radical at all. I think I'm just trying to make the point that there's something there about more broadly the disciplining of behaviours and relations, which is like self-evidently quite necessary to like a developing capitalist state, right? And I think it's about that first and foremost, probably. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a really interesting recent book by Christopher Chitty that I think really influenced you thinking and my thinking all this. And the book is called Sexual Hegemony, and it's a really good book to read if you would like a book about Marx and Foucault by people who have read and understood both and are interested in thinking and not playing games of toy soldiers. Um, but the book talks about the... It follows Origi's world systems progression, right? These different sites where capitalism as we understand it is being kind of formed and developed. The Florentine Renaissance, Amsterdam, London, New York, moving forward through the centuries, right? And looks at the ways that in all these places, the regulation of sodomy becomes a key part of population management in this kind of development of of capitalist relations. And certain things are common between all of these places, right? In all of these places, it has something to do with large populations of people coming to cities, being separated from the land. Their behavior becomes something that has to be managed, right? It has to do with social reproduction, with the need for the proletariat to reproduce itself, and with the idea that sexuality is a threat to that kind of social reproduction. And it has to do with the ways in which oftentimes claims about uh, religious violations, right? Violations of, of religious contracts or, or of religious um, ways, ways of behaving can mobilize segments of proletarian or working or peasant populations against other segments of, of proletarian working and peasant populations, right? And once you see the history of that, I think that you understand that attempts to do that now, especially when they come from people who, who claim to be on the left, are really disgusting and are also doing the boss's work for them, right? Mm-hmm. So 
That history is, I think, really important to the story that we're telling in the book. And that's kind of how I think about that. Where does sex work come into this? Because that seems to be a consistent like thorn in the side of people who want to maybe make some progress about expanding the horizons of um, what kind of sexual behaviours are and aren't punished. There's continual suspicion of sex work as, under various guises, it's a space of kind of cross-class contact, as a sort of vector of diseases, metaphorical and literal. And even in Hirschfield's work, uh, very pioneering in many of its ways, still sex work is something that is offered up as a site of potential social discipline, that's something that needs to be cracked down on. So I'm just guess wondering why. Sex work is interesting because sex work, whether queer or straight, is I think another one of these kind of slant-wise places, right? It's a place that brings people from extremely different places within social structures very close to one another, very intimately, right? And for that reason is something that is often very strictly policed and also something that results in, I think, a lot of really interesting kind of historical happenings, if that is, if that's a, a noun that makes sense there. And so when sex work begins to intersect with rights-based sexual movements, right, with movements like Hirschfeld's, which is one of the first that's articulating this idea that homosexuals are a kind of permanent but non-pathological minority, that we are born this way, that we deserve civil equality, then you want to start to separate the respectable homosexual from the bad sex worker. And so Hirschfeld has this really funny thing where he says, well, because there are all of these gay for pay sex workers, right? Because there are all of these people who aren't necessarily identifying as homosexual. That means that they're not actually part of our movement. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't have to care about them because all sex workers are just gay for pay and they're straight people and they're not really part of us. And what they're doing actually is blackmailing us. Right, And if you're a middle-class or upper-middle-class German uh, gay man in the 1910s, 1920s, contributing to the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, going to Hirschfeld's lectures, reading these books, you're part of that kind of, as the Germans say, Bildungsbürgertum, the sort of educated middle classes that are, that are part of these kind of civil discourses, part of German Vereinskultur, um, kind of collective uh, association culture, organizational culture. Then... Your experience with sex workers is likely, much more likely as a patron, uh, right, rather than as a sex worker. And there are, are actually, if sodomy is illegal, right, and if the charge can cause you to lose your job and lose your home and whatever, uh, there are a lot of opportunities for working class men to blackmail upper class men. And so there are a lot of people who experience blackmail. There are a lot of people who commit suicide because of blackmail, right? One of the first films about a gay person is about this very talented young violinist who gets blackmailed and kills himself. And Hirschfeld appears in the film and has this kind of monologue about how sexuality needs to be treated more justly and more scientifically. Otherwise, more tragedies like this will continue to occur. And even at that time, this position on sex work attracts critics. Kurt Hiller is one of these critics. He's a communist who delivers a really great speech to um, uh, kind of batting back against a kind of homophobia of the French communist Henry Barbusse in the, in the late 20s that people should look up if they want some answers to this kind of left-wing homophobia that unfortunately just refuses to go away. But mm. Hiller also intervenes when Hirschfeld is ready to accept a legal compromise that would have gotten rid of the general sodomy ban, but would have brought in harsher penalties for sex workers. And what 
Hiller says, points to, he says, look, the people who are being arrested for this, people are going to jail, they are disproportionately sex workers. And so this is not actually going to result in that many fewer convictions. Like, you are still going to have a lot of people going to jail for this. And he ends up, they end up splitting the movement over this. Um, and Hirschfeld gets kind of kicked out of being the head of his own institution, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, one of his institutions. He keeps his institute. But I think the, those divisions are really interesting and really present. And I think it's because sex work, like homosexuality itself, has this kind of slantwise cut, if that makes sense. There's so many moments in terms of the history of the policing and the, and the punishment of same-sex acts, shall we say, where there's a sort of double movement of, on the one hand, you get a sort of nominal liberalisation. And uh, on the other hand, you get the, the punishment or, uh, in fact, an even more violent crackdown on kind of other aspects of it, be it sex work or cottaging or cruising or various forms like that. And often that means that people are being punished in even greater numbers. And one of the things that springs to mind as a sort of modern example of that is how a much kind of vaunted slide towards progress in terms of the UK nation state, gay marriage, that kind of thing, gay adoption, is also twinned with much harsher punishments at the border and much uh, more rigorous policing of like queer kinship structures when there is a border in the way of them. And Am, I know that you've done work on this. It's sort of the other major sort of line in the sand, perhaps, alongside sex work is, of course, the question of, of borders. Yeah, of course. And I think it's it, it's really important to to remember that so many of the rights-based discourses for citizens that are pursued, in many cases, necessarily leave out or exclude those who, you know, are, are hurt and are harmed by borders and people who subvert borders, right? And actually, the, the interaction between the violence of the border regime and the kind of classism of the exclusion of sex workers from, like, parts of the of the queer movement I mean those two things are like very strongly linked right like at the same time as the British government can trade on like homo nationalist ideas that says you know oh we actually can't take in this many migrants from the Middle East in particular for example or from West Africa because they don't share our values you know they'll be a danger to queer people and you know while, while a lot of this is just ramping up media rhetoric like the number of times I've been out like bucket shaking, like fundraising with lesbians and gays support the migrants in Soho, like kind of trying to trying to get a little bit of cash from like the good gays of central London. The number of times that we've been doing that and we've been told, why are you, why are you fundraising for people that are kind of come here and stoners? Like the, the, how much that has pervaded a certain section of like queer people today is like sometimes really, really shocking. But at the same time as the government can trade, and the state, right, rather, can trade on, on those discourses of this is why we shouldn't allow these people in. At, at the same time, when queer people are seeking asylum here, sometimes they've been forced to submit sex tapes to like prove their sexuality, for example. There was a ridiculous case of a man whose asylum application was rejected, I think because the judge said he didn't look or behave camp enough, right? Or he didn't dress camp enough. And so these kind of signifiers of, of, of what it means to be to be queer and how those relate to kind of gender expression, like Ben was saying earlier on, like for the state, those signifiers like are both fluid and also really important at the same time. Sex work is a very common profession for people who are undocumented, right? And a lot of those people are queer. And there are horrific cases of the Home Office or the police like raiding 
what is in legal terms a brothel, but is often just a group of sex workers living and working together for their own safety, confiscating the earnings um, of those people and their savings, detaining them for up to a year in detention centres, and then deporting them back to the places from which they had travelled, right? And so, like, it, it's important to remember that, like, these, these discourses of the state are kind of, like, two-directional, you know, migrants and asylum seekers, you know, are at once, like, a threat to queer people, but if they are themselves queer, they're also not queer enough. And that that does actually have a fair bit to do with, like, the respectability politics that a certain type of, like, liberal gay has bought into in the quest for our right to get gay married for example right like there there is actually like when we're talking about like gay liberation like for me there is no gay liberation without border abolition there is no gay liberation without the abolition of policing and prisons because these are the sites of like classed and gendered and racialized violences that actually affect a lot of queer people but it's i should also clarify it's not because they affect queer people that, that abolition should be part of a queer politics right it's about like using these these kind of historically contingent terms that have been given to us through which a political lineage has been formed, using that to forge a political coalition, right? Like in, in, in the advancement of our collective liberation. Otherwise, like, I think there is a strong argument that says that whole annoying liberal argument of like, oh, I don't like labels, what's the point? Like, I think we should have labels for like a political reason as part of a strategy. But like, if we're going to have them, we better f-ing do that too, you know? So on the subject of labels, Ben, you and Hugh have written that homosexuality is a failure. So what does that mean? And I guess, what next? What next for homosexuality? What next for the gays? What next for the gays? That (laughs) is always the question that historians like the least, because we like to duck back into stories about the past because it already happened and it's harder to make us look really stupid in a couple of years when things haven't come true. But... I think at the end of the book, we present two possible paths forward, right? Um, One of the paths forward is Pym Fortown. And this is what happens when the white gay man, the white cis gay man, enters into alliance with the state, reconceives of liberation as being about inclusion within what the state as it currently exists, has to offer and stops there and starts defending that position against new forms of others who are trying to claw their way in. And the other answer is something that comes out of the kind of alternative history to our history that we dance through a little bit in the last chapter in the conclusion, where we kind of go through this history of places where even if sort of incomplete and fleeting, different kinds of solidarity were formed and were built and try to think about what it might look like if we did that instead. Um, and that's what I think we should do instead. Emma, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree with a lot of what Ben has said. And I guess kind of riffing off that, like, it's so important not to romanticise or, like, fetishize like, moments of confrontation or, like, violence. But, like, I think at the same time we can be aware of what the spectacle of those very clear fault lines can generate. And it's something that I've been seeing, you know, like in my local communities in South London. It's something that like my friends and comrades up and down the country have been saying to me is that in areas where like a kind of resurgence of like a street fascist presence, which has been developing in Britain, primarily around hotels housing asylum seekers and primarily outside pubs hosting drag shows. 
the presence of people just out of prison for racially aggravated assault, people, you know, who were screaming at, like, queer people and calling them paedophiles, people who were doing Nazi salutes, the actual active presence of those people on the street, and then the corollary of police violence faced by... I mean, I want to say anti-fascist, but the truth is a lot of the people turning up are just literally local people turning up to defend their local pub, right? Um, that that experience is turning them into anti-fascists, right? That experience is is forcing them to kind of, in in some sense, pick a side. There was someone at, at one of the demonstrations on our Oak several months ago who, who just kind of touched my arm gently at the point at which there are about 900 people, I think, chanting on our side and... We'd kind of cleared the road, we cleared the pub. It was a really jubilant moment. And she just sort of quietly said, it took me a while, but I'm very clear which side I'm on now and I'm glad I'm here, right? And that's like, there are so many people, so many different experiences who are going to witness as well as experience the state repression and also the violence of like far-right groups who are going to realise what the stakes are. A new coalitions can be formed there, right? Like the thing I'm always saying to people is that like we forge solidarity through struggle. And I really agree with what Ben was saying about like it's not going to be enough just to like purge our own spaces and forging solidarity through struggle is like really how we do how we do effective like political education, how we bring people on boards and how we kind of bring on new comrades in the struggle for a queer revolution. And I guess, yeah, I guess my closing thoughts are that, like, there is a lot to be hopeful for and a lot to be found in the fight back, and the fight back is absolutely happening. And we should be telling those stories of, like, queer and trans resistance just as much as we're telling the stories of our own oppression. Yeah, and and I think that the degree to which the fight back is so often supported by people is also an important story to tell within a kind of broader left, right? That, you know, when when um, that miserable little motherfucker started shooting up a gay bar in Colorado, it was the father of one of the performers who happened to be at the show or the father-in-law of one of the performers who ran into gunfire and held him down while a trans performer stomped his head in with her stilettos and you know, then the cop showed up, right? But that this resistance is happening and it's not, it's happening in alliance. And the idea that we need to, that the left should be acquiescing to this kind of fascism in order to win some imagined subject to its side is, as I said, not only fails at solidarity, but is also doing the bosses and our enemies work for them. And the people promoting that idea are our enemies and should be treated as such. And there, I think, we will have to leave it. Amar, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. This has been the Verso Podcast. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That was our episode. We heard from Ben Miller and Amadeep Singh Dillon about itinerant anthropologists, leather daddies, sex workers, soldiers, and the fight back against modern fascism. Coming up next episode, I'll be talking to Robin D.G. Kelly and Kevin O'Koth about the revolutionary life and legacies of Walter Rodney. See you then. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.